our only weapon is our courage. That's a statement that I heard as I sat across from the guest of this podcast episode, and you're going to hear those words as well. You know, before I began to be immersed in the fight against human trafficking, I imagined that moments of intervention were these sensationalized encounters of dramatic police activity, daring rescues, and even Hollywood-esque images of survivors walking off into the sunset, reveling in their freedom. But the reality is that it's all much more humble than that. At the Exodus Road, our investigators don't enter into spaces armed with guns, ready to threaten physical violence in exchange for the freedom of the oppressed. Instead, our operatives realize and are in fact trained to act under the knowledge and belief that our greatest hope in creating long-term systemic change to human trafficking is in playing the long game. They often invest hundreds of hours building evidence around a case, sitting undercover in conversation with suspected victims, and all that so that they can ensure that we can present proof of exploitation and can empower our law enforcement partners to mobilize on intel, rescue victims, and arrest traffickers. It's their courage that keeps them in the fight, and it's how we make trafficking a more dangerous thing to do. Today, I'm honored to introduce you to a man born and raised in Latin America. He's committed to the fight against human trafficking, and his name is Arturo. Well, actually, that is an alias that we're using to protect his identity. But he is the country director for the Exodus Road in Latin America. And so here to share in his own words about his background and the stories of rescue from the front lines of the fight against human trafficking is Arturo. I'm married. Um, I got uh, three children, three daughters, actually. Um, about my background, what can I tell you? Uh, I worked for the military for 25 years in the Army, especially in the Intel and Special Operations field. This is what I did. But I ended up teaching, which is which I love the most, yeah. within the military, because it's a way of changing lives. When I was thinking about uh, retiring from the Army, I started to think about what my future would be. So how would it look like? And at that time, um, I had a conversation with my special friend, who is God, and I asked him what my plans for the future will be. And by that time, I got a call from a friend, from a U.S. friend, who told me uh, about the Exodus Road. And I said, human trafficking, what's that? I know a lot of fights, I know about battles, I know about wars, but I haven't heard about fighting human trafficking. So by that time, when I heard and I started to study about that, I saw that that was not an opportunity, but that was a calling in my life to join this fight. I joined the army first because I wanted to fight for those in need for the week. And when I retired, I continued to do the same thing. Arturo was instrumental in the launch of the Exodus Road Search and Rescue Program in Latin America. In the early days of our involvement in this country, which, by the way, remains undisclosed out of the sensitivity that we have to the government partnerships that we rely on in our programs and operations there, he spent much time developing relationships with law enforcement and other NGOs, even as case investigations and evidence gathering took place. 
These relationships that he worked so hard to develop would be critical in ensuring that casework would be trusted and acted on by local police. Well, in the beginning, it was weird because it was everything. I was, uh, you know, I was the manager, I was investigator, I was a director, I was uh, uh, logistics, I was everything. But now I am the director doing the same things with some help. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, this is my role. I am now the country director. The first thing I learned learned about human trafficking, and this is what I share with other people, is that human trafficking is hidden. It's a hidden crime. Nobody sees it. It's really difficult to see it. In many, in here, obviously, there is prostitution, which makes the problem more complicated. Um, prostitution is legal in some parts and under some rules, and this, this is. This, let's say, behind this, the problem, it is taking place every day. In this country, as is the case in many, many countries around the globe, the crime of human trafficking can be obscured behind the cover of willing prostitution. And I want to be intentional to state that the existence of prostitution does not inherently mean that human trafficking is taking place. However, the existence of legalized prostitution is widely known to provide cover for nefarious actions of human traffickers that are using force, fraud, or coercion to obtain commercial sex from exploited victims. So what can seem on the surface to be willing commercial sex can sometimes actually be exploitation hidden deep underneath. How do you do the work of seeing underneath? Like what are the, maybe what are some of the questions that you ask that help to un to better understand if someone is a victim of human trafficking? Well, first of all, it is implied that a 16, 15, 14 year old girl in a party with adults, it is not normal yeah. <laughs> at all. But even when they are adults, the kind of question that we need to ask is, for example, their backgrounds. So we just need to start not asking questions, but starting a friendly conversation. Hey, how are you feeling today? Yeah. What do you think about the weather today? Uh, I don't want to do anything else today, but just to sit beside you and share some time, you know, and make uh, that victim feel like my friend instead of being a client. Once we gain confidence, instead of asking questions, it's like starting a conversation. Hey, you know, uh, last year I lost my wallet and I, didn't have any money to get uh, bread for my breakfast next day. Have you faced the same situation? Yeah. Usually the answer is yes, I do it every day. You know, I feel sad because I lost my mom when I was uh, 20, which was uh, true. And it was really sad. I didn't know what to do with my life. Have you heard about something about, yeah. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't meet my, my, my dad, for example, most of them. And then I came to live with another man who abused me, and he took me to this place. So it is not asking questions, it's having a conversation. A relation. Exactly. Like, yeah. it's, exactly. It's creating a wild environment for, in order for them to speak yeah. and give you what you are looking for. As you think about um, the work of the Exodus Road in this country, can you talk about just a few of the moments that you've been most proud um, Obviously, like every rescue, every arrest is a celebration. Um, but are there specific moments that you're like, oh man, we worked very hard 
in this season to see this take place and to celebrate that rescue? Yeah, well, first of all, let's say we never stop working, obviously. The very first case we started to work with was, uh, with the National Police was uh, a place called that was a like a, a like a military fort. Nobody could enter to that place. It was um, it was basically uh, like a bunker. We started uh, gathering information and doing a lot of time of surveillance to see how girls enter. It was a house. It was like a kind of vacation house when they went on some time off on vacation. Uh, you know, they came here. To that place only to look for sexual services from young girls, very young girls. I cannot say they were really children, that they were teens. Yeah, adolescents. Exactly. Let's say 12 to 18, the oldest, where they were coming here to look for. So anyway, we started uh, getting information about that. We couldn't enter the place. We tried many times. We were threatened. Uh, we almost entered into a fight many times to get any information, but we started just following the perpetrators, where they went, who they called. Um, then we started following some victims as well, and again, relationships with them, and just speaking with them, uh, being friendly with them. We got some phone numbers, and we passed it on to the national police, and they got something to be intervened. It took about two years uh, to build that case, and uh, it was successful. I think it was about uh, 30 girls that were rescued by then. 30? Yeah. Wow. We wanted to see what was happening in our city. It's a metropolis, so nobody thinks that human trafficking is happening, is happening in here. So, so we just went out to see what's going on. And we went to those places that in the country are called tolerance zones, which means that uh, street prostitution is permitted. And we started to see what's going on. But we started to see young girls, teens, and we said, what's going on? So we started to spend some time, and finally we found a corner. It's a, it's a popular place, it's a lot of businesses, it's a lot of uh, garages, it's a, a lot of things, commerce in different ways. Uh, people going from one place to the other, it's open space. But in one specific corner, we saw a group of about 20 girls just standing there, wearing some of them normal clothing, others wearing uh, just like summer clothing in cold weather. This is not normal. And uh, a few meters from them, there was a man just sitting there. I said, what's going on? And the man came to us and said, what are you looking for? Just passing around, just see what's going on. Arturo's existence on this street and at this corner represented a threat to the livelihood of a criminal enterprise taking place under the cover of legal prostitution. As the Exodus Roads team continued to return to this place and try to speak with the teenage girls standing on the corner, it became clear that their actions were being closely watched and managed by men that hovered nearby. 
When one guy requested that operatives pay him in order to speak to the girls, his identity as a pimp was confirmed. But their fervor for gathering evidence that would prove exploitation and result in an operation with law enforcement only increased. And uh, we started to pass day, night, weekends, uh, work, uh, work days, uh, Christmas time, summertime, vacation time, any time. It was the same thing. And then the average number of girls in that corner was 15. And the average age was 15. We started to get information how things work in that place. And we discovered that there were some uh, inns nearby that also allowed them to go in with clients. And then when they came back, they needed to pay to the pimp. And the way, let's say, that he was guaranteed the payment was by retaining something, their cell phones, something they liked. And this is really sad also their babies because some of them were and today are mothers, they have babies. As a form of coercion and control, the traffickers would utilize a local woman to offer the illusion of care for the children of the trafficked victims. These underage girls, already mothers themselves, would have no choice but to leave their children under the watch of a seemingly caring neighborhood woman so that they could work the street and satisfy the requirements of their traffickers. After many, many hours of investigation and collaboration with local authorities, the data that Arturo's team was able to capture empowered police to coordinate a massive raid. It resulted in the arrest and prosecution of 17 traffickers, and police and aftercare partners also helped to liberate 80 minors between the ages of 4 and 17 years old. Now, not all were directly victims of human trafficking, as some were the children of those experiencing exploitation. But regardless, this represented a massive win in the fight against human trafficking in this city. In this country, as in everywhere else in the world, um, COVID began to change the way that people live life um, in the last year. And so I'm just curious to know a little bit about uh, the challenges maybe that that brought to the work of investigation, to the work of rescuing survivors here in this country. And um, I'd love to hear just from you as the country director, how the operations innovated and evolved in the midst of that to continue to search for victims of human trafficking. Yeah, sure. First of all, uh, we were very frustrated by then when the restrictions started because we were working on important cases and we needed to stop. But human trafficking never stops. Yeah. So um, what we did was that we tried to find trends. Uh, we didn't just go in online looking for advertisements, for example, yeah. on social media, what's going on, WhatsApp groups. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is social media is providing uh, a lot of uh, opportunities for recruiters, yeah. recruiters, and also for clients, and also for girls. It is a way to find money. Sadly, when all restriction started, the government was not ready. So many poor families started to suffer. Yeah. And that was, that was uh, let's say, how many girls started to be recruited yeah. by uh, criminal instructors. Because and uh, we saw that something was happening. And then we started to, ga to gather those uh, phone numbers 
um, passing them on to the national police, and they started to lose income retention. And there were people hiring young girls to work as they call models in webcam studios. Our Latin American team began to notice advertisements for vaguely defined job opportunities targeted at young women in local places. In some cases, advertisements were taken in newspapers, but details surrounding the job opportunity were obscured. Recognizing this as a red flag for potential exploitation, the team investigated, and their suspicions were confirmed as they discovered web camera studios offering sexual services on the back end of the job ads. As Arturo and his team, following all of the best practices put in place by the Exodus Road's investigative procedures in partnership with law enforcement, began to interact with young women and girls that they suspected to be victims of exploitation, they ask questions that might allow them to learn details of their situation and experiences. And just as in other cases, the conversations would reveal signs of coercion and exploitation. And we created stories and started to talk to them. Where are you from? I'm living in this place. Look, I speak this language. I do this. All of a sudden, a couple of them, minors, said, oh yeah, we are living also in this place. Okay, we are neighbors. I can help you. How can I help you? Let me, let me help you. And uh, where are you working? What is the place where you're working at? Uh, in this exact address. Oh, really? Yeah, good. I can see you this day. So it was a conversation. Yeah. And we discovered some uh, webcam studios in different cities in the country by doing that. And then we passed again the information to the uh, law enforcement. And they issued all legal orders. And at the end, uh, it was difficult. It was not a big number, but we could rescue uh, two minors yeah. and one adult. Yeah. Do you remember how old the minors were? Yeah. One of them was 15 and the other was 17. Yeah. And the adult, which is also sad, was 20. Yeah. I said sad because it is, it is uh, it's still a, a girl. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I am a father of a 22-year-old uh, girl. Yeah. For me, it's still a kid. I want to talk a little bit um, about... I know you've mentioned your family um, being supportive of the work that you do, but I wonder if, uh, if you might just tell me more about how they feel about the work that you do, about the fact that you go undercover. Is that difficult for your family? Yeah, let's say it is, it is in some way, is related to what I did in the past in the Army. Yeah. When, because my specialty basically was uh, what we call technical intelligence, which is just to infiltrate and go and record and do what's going on and then come back. So uh, they knew the risk. But when I needed to talk to them, I explained, hey, uh, this is what is happening. I, I would like to help with this. Yeah. And I went online and I showed them some pictures and they were shocked. I told them, okay, this is my plan. They are asking me to go into brothels, to go to streets, to go to different places and to fight girls like you, I told my daughter, that are being exploited. Yeah. Like paper traders. And they, they, in the beginning, I have to be honest, all of us were kind of a little bit afraid. Yeah. Not because of the risk, but because we didn't know how to face it, how yeah. to manage it. It felt too big of an, exactly. like the, the problem felt too big. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And yeah. the only, let's say, weapon that we have is our courage. Yeah. And our ability to run in just in case, nothing else. You know, and... Um, well, we face the risk, so let's say in this way, anytime before and after I go out, 
we speak about that. And now, my wife has been kind of, let's say, supportive and the advisory, if I can say, advisory uh, pillar of my team yeah. to talk to the other's wife, wow. just to give them some advice about what's going on and how to face that. In fact, she has uh, been willing to go with me to some deployments. And we know how to communicate. First of all, because she knew how I did it in the Army in the past, and now how I do it today. And my daughters are aware of that, or ever aware of that. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, they um, at the Exodus Road, we say justice is in the hands of ordinary people. Absolutely. And it sounds like your family are perfect representatives of that statement, yeah, that they, they see what you do, and um, they want to be involved in their own way, and that's beautiful. Um, as you, um, as you continue to place yourself into difficult circumstances, and as cases happen, and um, maybe you work a case for a year, and then something happens and a girl just disappears, um, those are frustrating moments. What keeps you encouraged in the midst of this? That happens, that happens so often, actually speaking, yeah. Not because we don't want to continue, because sometimes the attorney in charge of the case is assigned to another position, so they need to close the case. Yeah. So that happens. And again, I think what encourages me to continue doing my job, again, is, is just remember the girls that I see outside and then think of my daughters yeah. and think of their daughters yeah. and think of your maybe future children as well. So this is, this, is, this is what encourages us all, because all of our investigators are parents. You know, we have children as well. So we think that we are doing something for our own children, or my friend's children, or my neighbor's children. This is how we see things. Yeah. This is our main motivation. Okay, maybe this kid was called down yesterday, was reprimanded. Now I'm going to smile to him yeah. or to her. That is, that is encouraging for us. Yeah, you are a source of light for them in thank, dark yeah, places. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one final question I have. Um, so in our work, um, there's a lot of conversation about the word rescue. Um, if it is an appropriate term to use, um, if um, it brings dignity to survivors, there's a, it's a complex conversation. And I wonder if you might just share a little bit about what you think of the word rescue. Like, what does that mean to you? And do you think, it, um, is it an appropriate way to talk about the work that we do? No, I, th I, think, I think this is the proper time, speaking about, let's say, definition of, of words, or maybe the jargon that we need to use in this field. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the proper word we used. However, the meaning can change. Mm. The meaning of the word is basically second chance. It is change. It is light. That's the meaning that we see anytime we rescue somebody. Yeah. Look, there is light, there is hope. This is the meaning of rescue for us. It's not numbers. It's not, it's not let's say, uh, something related to ego, you know, to be on the news. It's not, it's not about, uh, let's say, showing I'm doing this. Even if nobody knows that, but if we can give them hope, if we can give them 
happiness, at least for a short period of time, that is rescue for us. Well, I just want to compliment you. Um, you are a master of communication, there is no doubt. And I think that's why you're so successful in conversation with, with victims and with survivors. Um, I loved hearing about the transparency and authenticity you have with your wife. I think that is um, just a hallmark characteristic of, of a healthy operative and a healthy investigator. And so I'm just really encouraged by that. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. If you would like to support the work of Arturo and the other men and women that serve on our Latin American team, you can do so by becoming a search and rescue community member. Our search and rescue community is made up of hundreds of men and women, families, and even businesses around the world that give generously on a monthly basis. And 100% of your gift as a search and rescue member will be sent to the front lines to fuel investigative, rescue, and aftercare work for victims and survivors just like the young girls Arturo and his team encountered at Quinceanera Corner. You can learn more and join the community today at theexodusroad.com. Until All Are Free is a podcast by The Exodus Road, we are an organization of action and we're bringing about systemic, holistic change. You can learn more about our three core programs, Traffic Watch Academy, Search and Rescue, and Beyond Rescue on the Our Solution page of our website. That's theexodusroad.com. This episode was recorded and produced by me, Preston Goff. Special thanks to City of Sound, who produced and generously donated the music you've heard on the intro and outro of this episode. Hey, if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to take a moment to rate and review Until All Are Free wherever you are listening to this episode. It really helps. Stay alive.